As Andy just mentioned, the words that we will hear in our second scripture reading this morning come from the prophet Isaiah chapter 40, beginning with verse 21. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows upon them, they wither and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these. He who brings out the starry hosts and numbers them, calling them all by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the words spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. This passage from Isaiah always makes me think of one movie, and I'll bet it's a movie that will surprise you. It's a movie that came out when I was in college, and it's not one that I would have gone to see on my own, but it's a movie I sought out after hearing it used in a sermon on this very passage several years ago. And as I mentioned, I still think of it every time I hear these words. The movie is the animated film, Ants. Some of you may have seen it and may be trying to figure out where I'm going with this. The rest of you are probably confused and possibly concerned about our sermon this morning, and I don't blame you. As the movie opens, the camera zooms in on the lead ant whose name is Z and who's voiced by Woody Allen. He's laying on his back, on his aunt psychiatrist's leaf couch, staring up into the void. In classic Woody Allen fashion, he is noting the vastness of the universe, recounting all his disappointments, lamenting life, and generally feeling lost. At the end of his monologue, he sighs and states, it all makes me feel so insignificant. Suddenly, the camera pulls back, and you see that he's surrounded by billions and billions of busy little ants, at which point his aunt psychiatrist says, that's because you are insignificant. (laughs) 
And as the sermon I heard all those years ago stated, maybe that's exactly the way Isaiah wants us to picture it. It is God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth nothing. To whom then will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. The Christian faith consistently proclaims two things about God, two things that seem to be in tension with one another. And theologians have formally named each of these two characteristics, like many others, with two big, fancy theological words. The first word is transcendence. Transcendence says that God is vast beyond all vastness. Transcendence affirms that God lies beyond all categories of human comprehension, beyond gender, beyond mortality, beyond flesh, beyond time, beyond space, beyond imagination. Transcendence says that we cannot even begin to wrap our minds around who God is and what God does. I remember reading an article in seminary that talked about this idea. Roger Rosenblatt wrote an editorial in Time magazine in the wake of the September 11th tragedy entitled, God is not on your side, or not on our side, or yours. In the article, Rosenblatt suggests that no one knows what God is thinking about unless one is like Muhammad Atta, who had a pathological view of faith, or maybe Jerry Falwell. There are lots of folks like me Rosenblatt writes. There are lots of folks who are uncertain about what God is thinking. I believe in God, all right, but I do not believe God is on our side or on any side. He goes on to say, the essential act of faith, it seems, is wonder, a sort of involuntary fascination in awe. What a statement. He argues that the first and fundamental religious experience is not certainty. No, instead, the first and fundamental religious experience ought to be awe and wonder at the mystery and the beauty and the glory of God and the glory of life. Awe at the reality that's beyond us and our feeble attempts at knowing. What a concept. The idea that the primary purpose of religion is to allow, to allow us to experience awe. Not to remind ourselves that we're right and everyone else is wrong, but to confess that we cannot grasp it all. We're never fully able to talk about or sing about or act out the mystery of who God is and what God does. We're in need of always reminding ourselves that God is simply our three-letter word, human-made, for the reality that, will never, that we will never and can never ultimately understand who God is and what God does. That's why Anne Lamott says that in addition to her two favorite prayers, which are help me, help me, help me, help me, and thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, <laughs> we ought to say, wow, wow to our God and about our God at least once a day. I did a little research this week. Do you know 
that if you Google the word awesome, you'll get 2,740,000 results, including things like awesome cleaner, awesome lyrics, awesome tanks, awesome planes, awesome wallpapers, awesome sauce, awesome hashtag, and my favorite, awesome pirates. And if you type in awesome.com, you find a website with a blue-green background and the year 2024 in lime green numbers at the top of the page. That's it. That's the whole web page. I didn't get it. The point of all of that is to say that awe has probably lost all meaning for us. It no longer means all the old stuff like mystery and wonder. When someone says, that's awesome these days, what they usually mean is, hey, that's pretty good. The dictionary defines awe as an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, or fear. But we seem to have lost so much of that, even in, and maybe especially in, the church. Joseph Sittler, who taught at the University of Chicago Divinity School, said that we have sunk so deeply into a monodimensional and secularized culture that we've lost ear, eye, and heart for any word that asserts a totally different possibility. Sittler thought we Protestants are altogether too casual about our worship. He was irritated by what he called chatty spirituality, worship that suggests that it's no big deal to call on the name of the Lord or to presume to be in the divine presence. Sittler was a good high church Lutheran who would sneak into a Roman Catholic mass every now and then to be reminded of the mystery and the importance of awe. He was known to become enraged when visiting a church if the pastor, instead of calling the congregation into the awesome presence of the Most High God of creation, began the service by simply saying, good morning, as if he had run into them at the grocery store. Fortunately for Sittler and for us, we have words from Holy Scripture like Isaiah's. To whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. The one who brings out the starry hosts and numbers them, calling them each by name. Because the Lord is great in strength, mighty in power, not one is missing. When Isaiah wrote these words, he was writing to people in the same kind of monodimensional, secularized culture that we find ourselves He was writing to people like us who were in danger of being lulled into complacency, forgetting the wonder and the mystery and the awesome power of God. You may remember the history lesson from my sermon on Isaiah a few weeks ago. The people of Israel were in exile, captured and relocated to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and deported the nobles and the civic leaders and the business leaders to Babylon. What I didn't tell you, but it's important to know, is the Israelites were not really imprisoned there. To the contrary, they were encouraged to become part of the Babylonian community, to start businesses, to raise families, to build homes, to settle in. So 
what if the Babylonians worshipped these other gods, Murdoch and Nebo? The Israelites' God hadn't done anything to help them. Their God hadn't rescued them from capture and exile. Yahweh hadn't saved their temple or their homes. And what do you know? Maybe the local gods, the Babylonian gods, were more powerful. Or maybe life was simply just the flip of a coin. Maybe what people do and how they act really cannot change the future. So why not indulge in the moment and forget about Yahweh? Have you not known, Isaiah thunders? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? T.S. Eliot puts it this way. You are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity or carry report. You are here to kneel. I told you at the beginning of the sermon that there are two big fancy theological words that we Christians use to affirm what we believe about God. The first was transcendence. That God is above and beyond and greater and higher and more than we could ever dare to ask or imagine. Transcendence. Awe. So the first big fancy theological word is about God being so far beyond us. But the second big fancy word is about God right here with us. Imminence. God with us. God among us. That's the picture Mark paints in the gospel story we heard Bill read from the gospel passage. Jesus healing Simon's mother-in-law. Jesus eating dinner. Jesus casting out demons. Jesus cursing diseases. Jesus teaching in the synagogues. Jesus going through the towns and the villages of Galilee. Jesus going where people needed him. Eminence. God with us. God among us. The Eastern Orthodox tradition has long understood that the incarnation, God coming to us in Jesus Christ, that the coming of God in a human body with human feet that stood in dirt and dust and lived in time, the incarnation means that all space and all time become holy. This story was written a long time ago and a long way away. And it's easy, I suppose, just to pass it off as biblical poetic license. In the New Testament, as we heard Meredith discuss last week, demons routinely caused people to be thrown to the ground or chained to tombstones, which is hardly the case today. But we wrestle with our own demons, don't we? Demons that are every bit as powerful. Demons of addiction. Demons of depression or cancer or injustice or racism or abuse or anger or fear. Demons of perfectionism or workaholism or self-importance. Ours may be more socially acceptable, but we have our own demons that hound us just as surely as those crowds that gathered outside Simon's front door. That's why 2,000 years later, the gospel still is such good news. That's why the incarnation matters. In our brokenness, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, comes to us. He 
and heals us and sets us free. N.T. Wright says that the God we now serve is the God whose middle name is Jesus. In other words, we need to know the God we worship and serve is the God whose very character is grace and mercy and love. A few years ago, there was a story in the Minneapolis Star Tribune about Sister Helen Morsha who taught school in Morris, Minnesota for many, many years. Sister Helen, the story begins, remembers a polite, handsome, and mischievous ninth grader at St. Mary's School whose name was Mark Eklund. And she remembers an especially difficult Friday in 1965 when her freshman students, frustrated by hard problems, became cranky and edgy. She told them to put aside their problems, take out a fresh piece of paper, and list the name of every student in the class. I told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates, she said. She then collected the lists and took them home, and over the weekend, she wrote the name of each student on a new sheet of paper and then listed all the good things the other students had written about them. And then, the next Monday morning, she handed out those papers. The students read the words on the sheets of paper and then tucked them into their folders and their binders and their books. And then they put them away in their bags. Nobody said a word. Nobody mentioned the lists again. Not for a long time. When Mark Eklund was killed in Vietnam in 1971, his parents asked Sister Helen to come to his funeral. Afterward, she visited with them at the home of one of Mark's old classmates. We want to show you something, Mark's father told her. And he brought out a wallet. They found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought you might recognize it. The piece of paper had been folded and refolded hundreds of times. Mark treasured it, his mom said. By then, several of the classmates had gathered around, I still have my list, Charlie said. It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. Marilyn said, I have mine too. It's in my diary. Vicki pulled her list out from her purse. I carry this with me all the time. Knowing that you're loved changes everything. God says that in this sea of 7.8 billion people on earth, the hairs on your head are counted. So know the transcendent God, the creator of the ends of the earth, loves every little thing about you. Know that God loves you so much, so vastly, so fully, as to empty divine life into an imminent Savior who would die for you. For you. Know that you're loved. Because knowing that you're loved changes everything. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Thanks be to God. Amen.
may be seated. Let us turn to God in prayer. O Holy One, you lift us up to the heights. On wings like eagles, you enable us to soar with the possibilities of transformation, of new life, of redemption, both within our own souls and within this world, which needs so much of your care. And yet it is not the bright skies where we most often live. We are here with our feet on the ground, your feet planted firmly beside us as we try to walk without fainting, walk through the shadows of death, of brokenness, of ill health and addiction, walk through life changes of births, aging, loss, and disease. And so we need your strength to not grow weary as we continue to hope for new life amidst old attitudes and injuries. We long to run and not grow faint as we challenge the hatred, fear, and injustice that seep into our own daily encounters. And as we work for your compassion and wholeness for all people and all creatures in this very earth. Oh God, you long for us to see the God image in each of us. Help us to stop and truly see each other and your belovedness. Let us disrupt those things that divide us, those barriers that distort your image, and work towards the beloved community. During this Black History Month, let us celebrate our brown and black siblings in Christ and the beauty and divine image that they reflect of you, O oh God. And not just this month, but every day, let us strive to see and hear each of your children especially those that have been long silenced. Oh God, we pray for those whose bodies, minds, and spirits are broken or ailing, remembering Linda Smith, Wallace McClure, and Ann Payne. We pray for the family of Libba Wall, and we grieve that she is no longer with us and ask that you would comfort us, knowing that she is fully, has been fully embraced in your arms. Oh God, we pray for those living in war, wars that seem unceasing, especially in Israel, Gaza, Ukraine, South Sudan, and perhaps even in our own homes and hearts. Disrupt the violence and brokenness. O oh, Holy One, bring wholeness, restoration. Lift us up to the heights, O oh, Holy One, so we may again catch a glimpse of the vast possibilities of your shalom, your healing, and your wholeness. Even as we pray for it here on earth, and we pray now that prayer your son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us now respond to God's goodness. Let us worship God through our tithes and offerings. 